0: Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to
1: please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another.
0: And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album Half Seas. Basic folks 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. Thank you so much for finding us. Great to have you. Before we get into today's guest, Sam Phillips, let's talk about our newsletter. Uh, We are a podcast that sends out a monthly newsletter, if you can believe it or not. Sign up for the newsletter at our website, basicfolk.com. You can click on the red Sign up for Basic Folk Newsletter button. There's also a link in the show notes to sign up. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Basic Folk Pod on most of the social platforms. We are also a listener-funded operation. If you've been listening for a while and know we're a listener-funded operation but haven't made a contribution, now could be the time to do it. You can make your donation at basicfolk.com slash donate if you want to do none of those things and just listen, that is also fine. You could also, if you, if you want to, you could also tell a friend, tell your folk friends about this podcast. I think they'd love it. All right, let's get to Sam. Sam Phillips was born to a family that loved doling out nicknames. She was called Sam growing up in a house that was filled with readers. She nurtured her love of philosophy and spirituality by exploring different religions and devouring works by authors like C.S. Lewis and Thomas Merton. Early in her musical career, she found success as a Christian musician under her real name, Leslie Phillips. She made several albums, but became uncomfortable with her label marketing her as the Christian Cindy Lauper. She also had a desire to write songs that didn't reinforce people's religious beliefs. For her final Leslie Phillips album, she worked with future spouse, -spouse, ex-spouse T-Bone Burnett, a fellow Christian with a maverick approach to songs about faith and morality and a found kindred spirit. She decided to rebrand and started recording as Sam Phillips. Sam and T-Bone worked together from 1988's The Indescribable Wow to 2004's A Boot and a Shoe. In our conversation, we talk about Sam's writing process, which she's always changing up, She comes up with her best ideas when she turns off the trying part of her brain, but at the same time, she strongly believes in the power of editing. Sam's probably best known for composing and performing the score for the beloved Amy Sherman Palladino series, The Gilmore Girls, for which she also made a brief appearance on the season finale in 2006. You remember those la-la-las while Lorelai and Rory carried around their armpit purses, drank coffee while wearing those horrible bootcut jeans? That was Sam Phillips! Currently, Sam is working on a new album, and she's taking her time, so don't rush her, okay? Right now we're going to listen to her latest song, It's Too Many Light Years, From You To hear, and then we'll get to our conversation with one of my faves, Sam Phillips, on Basic Folk.
2: I can't lose my mind if I give it away So why don't you take it Too many thoughts of you Just make it yours anyway Lost in the cosmos, looking for re entry, trying to escape myself. Though I love my gravity, my own human depravity makes me long for a world somewhere else. Lost in the cosmos, tired of the future where everything moves so fast. So much hard travel, big where you and I never got to make our past lost in the cosmos you can find me behind a lonely moon with
0: Sam Phillips, thank you so much for uh, talking to me and being on basic folks.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I think I'm both basic and and a folk. So I, I, ho- I hope I met the requirements. I, the application was lengthy, but I hope you guys will <laughs> accept my application. You were born in Glendale, California, as Leslie Phillips. Actually, I was born in Los Angeles, proper, and a- and and I want to punch my hip card here. So I, I was actually born in what is now known as Silver Lake.
0: Oh my gosh, an original!
1: Isn't that funny, Silver
0: lakeian
1: Yeah, it's. Um, a hospital that is now called the Dream Center that I think is actually maybe a rehab or something that towers above the the freeways. Yes.
0: Wow. Well, that's cool. You were given the nickname, Sam. uh, And as I understand it, everyone had a nickname in your family. In fact, several nicknames. And my wife's family is the same, whereas there are (laughs) like three to four nicknames for each person and trying to find... Somebody in a phone, like, for the contacts is, like, near impossible, (laughs) um, which sets a certain tone. How do you think all the nicknames impacted the vibe of your house and how you related to one another?
1: Uh, I think it was was always lighthearted and fun. And I, I think, as I've said before, you know, we were talking about pets, and all the pets had, you know, abbreviated nicknames, and they kept changing. You know, nobody really had a name for really that long because, you know, people do change. So... Um, my child has many as well.
0: Uh, what What are some of the best nicknames in your family?
1: Um, the best or the strangest? Because we we had a I guess my my dog Kiki. Um, her her nickname, my dad called her Kiker Beaker. So you know how you know you know how you riff. It's like jazz. You just riff on these nicknames, and they get longer or shorter and. Um, I probably never should have said that. I shouldn't have divulged that family secret, but now you know it's <laughs> out here. It's out in the public, a basic folk show.
0: Great. I'm hoping to get many secrets from you today.
1: <laughs> oh, I. you know what? I might have to make some up to, to uh, entertain.
0: <laughs> Do you see that nickname effect showing up for you as an adult, as a parent, that kind of silliness?
1: Yes, I think— um, when did i realize this but i i remember thinking how do you what how do you become okay how do you become a whole person how do you become a, a an adult and i think at one point i realized or or what's a good person and aside from yes the basic love and respect i think the the people that you want to be around and the person that you want to be is somebody that's that's funny that's lighthearted that brings uh, makes people laugh and um, that's being close to somebody. I think there's nothing maybe more intimate than sense of humor, being able to mm. share a sense of humor, it, and it's also um, a sense of um, intelligence, comfort. You know, I, I think you can't. I can't say enough about a sense of humor. I think it's a real, um, really important uh, subtlety or maybe not so subtle thing in in a relationship.
0: Hmm. Yes, there's an ease to having a sense of humor, and it's a great defense mechanism, <laughs> I find. It can be that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. Can you describe the music scene in your family growing up? Who was listening to what? Who was playing what? And where did you find the good stuff?
1: Um, I found some good stuff. I had to dig. My my parents weren't very musical at all, although my my grandparents were. My My grandmother in the 1920s used to um, she would play the pump organ at church and she was a very tiny very slight lady um, and you know if you know anything about a pump organ you, you have to really work it with your feet to be able to get any sound out of it and so she would do that for like an hour and a half throughout the whole church service and then she was always really good at, at parties with her friends playing all the jazz and the you know the, the songs of the day Um, playing playing those on piano so there is a little bit of of music there but really in my house uh, my parents had nat king cole and jazz records and some you know broadway musicals and but it was very very slight although they did like the tijuana brass um, herb alpert's Mm. you know series and what i did learn from those records were a lot of standards that i had never heard anywhere else you know they weren't on the popular radio Back in the day, but Mm -hmm. I heard those melodies and I think that those melodies were influential. But, you know, so were commercials on television and all the Disney, uh, the Sherman Brothers, all those Disney classic films that they scored or that they wrote wrote songs for, you know, like Mary Poppins and The Jungle Book. So I I feel like as a child, a lot went in, including The the Beatles, my brother's Led Zeppelin records. You know, there's just a whole lot of stuff that went in.
0: I was at a bar last night that was playing like a satellite radio station of classic rock. My wife has a nephew who is like 15 years old and he only listens to like stuff from the 70s and 80s. And it's just there's like something about that kind of like Beatles, Led Zeppelin sound that I don't know what it is. If if you have that perspective at all that like that particular era so resonates with being a teenager and being angsty.
1: Yeah, and I, I find even listening to it now, listening to David Bowie or some of the glam rock um, of that era, um, it is, it's got a, I, I don't know if rebellion is such a clunky word, but it, but it does have the greatest pushback, the greatest attitude, questioning attitude, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I love that about um, music and some songwriters, like even like Tom Waits, I had a song, you know. He took the old, the trite old saying, "You can't take it with you," and and spit back, um, "I'm going to take it with me when I go," you know. And um, and <laughs> yeah, wrote all yeah. these, all those things that on mule variations, um, he all those things that he was going to take with him, you know, when he goes. And mm-hmm. I, I love that turning something on its side, giving it a different perspective. There was a lot of that, and I. I, I still hear that, and I'm I'm glad that those kids are listening to that kind of music. Um, I know a lot of kids about that age who as well who are listening to that kind of stuff, and I I hope that there will be more pushback in a, in a good way, in an interesting way, in a funny way, you know, not just people trying to reach some kind of a, a perfection, because I you know a lot of songwriters that I was coming up with they just they either wanted to be Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell, and I felt when I heard. Bob Dylan, I felt like quitting because he just covered so much and he was so great. And but but then I, I also knew that I could say it in a different way. There was there was something, mm-hmm. even if it just a few words, even if just one or two songs, I knew that I could um, get something in there that hadn't been said maybe quite the way I could say it. And that's, that's about the only songwriting lesson I think I could give to anybody other than just paying attention to really great melodies and great lyrics.
0: Mm. More on melody later, because I hear you're a melody person, as am I. Um, yeah. your, your family were avid readers in the house growing up, and it sounds like some heavy material was passed around. You got your hands on some philosophy books and spirituality books. Yeah, I was you know, maybe
1: uh, the other segment of the population in the 70s, you know that we don't hear about early 70s um you know a lot of drugs, sex and rock and roll but th- I think there were a lot of people exploring spirituality in those days too and um, and I was really interested in all of that and and um you know the things that we can't see things beyond us you know what is the spiritual realm um and so I was more interested in that as a kid, and I, I didn't experiment with drugs, but I did experiment with a lot of different um, oh, religion and philosophies and, and things, too, kind of too long to go into, but, but some hmm. almost even Jungian experiments that I was just a young kid and didn't know what I was doing, but saw some odd things that I still, to this day, can't explain.
0: How close were you to joining a cult?
1: Um, if you would say that um fundamentalist Christianity was a cult, I guess you could say that I joined it <laughs> so for a while because I did start out in the church my my uh my mom and my grandmother were uh Presbyterians and I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, but then started there was you know there were hippie churches popping up all over Southern California with a lot of folk music and um, you know, surfer church, and so I I've, I've frequented some of those and, and you know, basically learned a lot of the same things I learned about people there in the church that I did later on in yoga class or, um, you know, some of the, the different disciplines, you know, the different spiritual mm-hmm. disciplines that, that I um, came in contact with. There was a basic, you know, human thing that... Um, you can either be judgmental and always be right, um, or you can be loving and kind and open. and it it it's just kind of it's basically that, I think, pretty much across the board.
0: Hmm. The spirituality that you were experimenting with was it mainly Christianity? it It was
1: later on in my life when I was really young, there, you know there I was fascinated with, you know, magic and the occult. Um, but quickly kind of got into the church and and, um, sort of bumped around in there for a while.
0: Do you remember why you became so infatuated with spirituality and how you relate to that sort of ground zero for your infatuation?
1: I mean, my best guess is that I was, you know, an imaginative kid and a sensitive kid, also, um, you know, my family wasn't the most uh, happy, stable family. My, my parents did stay together and raise their kids, but it was, you know, there were a lot of issues. Um, it was far from perfect. So, you know, perhaps that drove me to, you know, look for some love, truth, you know, outside of my family. But, um, but I think it really just questioning and, and, curious and, and wanting to explore mm. all that for some reason. I think, you know, it's funny because my, my sister, my younger sister had no interest in that stuff. My, my brother was mildly interested. Um, but so I, I, just, I don't know. I think it, it might've just been me.
0: Would you say you're the most curious out of all your siblings?
1: Um, you know, I don't know that for sure. I mean, both of them are very intelligent people. Um, so I I don't want to I don't want to say that. I was the middle child right. too. So I kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, I love them both. They're very very different from me. I will say right. that. So they perhaps their questions were different questions from mine.
0: Right. Can you talk about why you started writing songs and if the reason still rings true for you now as a songwriter? Yeah, I think it
1: was it, well, I I started Dancing at three. I took dance lessons. And so my my what that did, I think, for me was really strengthen my sense of rhythm and melody um, and mm. and musical expression, because, you know, music, if you're a drummer, that's a, that's a very physical. Um, it's a very physical Activity to play the drums and and actually I think that singing is too you know some people are more athletic and have bigger gifts certainly than I do and they uh, they work out a lot more they're they're um, and they they push their voices a lot more or and take care of their voices a lot more but um, I think that 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 was one thing that started me off being really interested in music but then there was a you know there was kind of the that again that era. That was uh, in the classic singer-songwriter era, people wanted to say things in their songs. they wanted to express themselves, express truth. Um, we actually had a little library um, close to where I grew up that you could check records vinyl out of, and you could take them home oh, and cool. play them and then take them back, which was so cool for a kid who you know must didn't have been have, amazing. Yeah, I didn't have a job and couldn't. And so I found Randy Newman and um, a lot of different um, great, records that way that I never would have been able to afford to buy and wouldn't have known to buy Mm. either
0: Mm. there's kind of two questions in this question so when you were 14 you would attend Pentecostal meetings so I'm wondering what they were like was music involved and then the second part of this question I really should have separated them into two but how did you choose music to express your spirituality express your faith
1: um, well, the first thing I, I didn't really frequent, I mean, I, I went to a couple of Pentecostal meetings that were um, crazy theater, you know, they were really nutty. Mm-hmm. The, there was one near my home that I walked to because I was probably about 12 and um and i remember that all the women had on those long 70s dresses and they all had beehive hairdos and um i remember you know sitting down to this very nice lady and and i didn't mean to be an upstart but i i just said to her well is there so is the beehive hairdo is that connected to what you believe, you know, is that, is this part of the Pentecostalism? And she did get kind of offended and, and just, you know, said no, (laughs) but it really was, they all, they all really did look alike. And they, you know, they, the, the antics were quite, there were no snakes or anything like that, but it was, um, it was a show. Mm -hmm. It was a crazy show. And I, I, though I marveled at it, I had never seen anything like that. I, I, of course, didn't feel that I had, I could relate to it or that I wanted to be a part of it. So, um, Mm -hmm. I did find, like I said, something that was a little bit more, um, in the world that I was in, you know, the, um, surfer church, you know, kids that were my own age that were listening to folk music or rock music. And and there were rock bands and, and folk musicians that were, um, you know, talking about God. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a completely weird thing to, to get into. Um, but that's, you know, Basically, I think the culture at that time, it was very much like what was on the radio, so it was not a big stretch. It was interesting to um, to find that and, and to um, feel like maybe the, the music was saying something a little bit more than, uh, you know, let's make love in my Chevy van or whatever, you know, afternoon delight, whatever the, you know, it was happening yeah. <laughs> and all the, the insane, you know, pop hits of that
0: era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part of that question uh, was about choosing music as an expression of your of your faith and and becoming a Christian musician. How did you choose music? I
1: think inherently, i I knew this. I mean, i I was pressured and pressured myself to um to be very uh, to to toe the line and say, um, just just tout the party line, I guess you'd say. But I think that music also, I, I did know of some musicians and some writers that were approaching Christianity or spirituality in a much more subtle and imaginative way with metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I loved about the Bible, frankly. There' there's so much metaphor, and I really from an early age, learned to think that way all the time, to see metaphor in nature and in situations. And um, I think music was closer to a language that could express spirituality, you know. For instance, Mm. um, I I was listening to Avopart, Part, this wonderful composer, a a classical modern composer, and this piece the other day, uh, is this beautiful piece with strings in a a minor key and all of the, the strings are just over and over, they're descending almost like a waterfall. And there, I there was some kind of grief in the in that I heard or that I felt in the music. But it was interesting because it wasn't like a lot of times you hear a song and you you know the singer is talking about something and you understand uh, oh yeah that w- when I when I got my heart broken or when I lost somebody um, you know th- there are all kinds of ways you could relate to a song. But this was interesting because I, I felt like I couldn't really connect it to any personal. Grief. I felt like what, because it was such a big and beautiful composition, I felt the music was talking about something, a larger kind of grief, like for the planet, or for mankind, or for animals. I, you know, it was just a really big grief, and I thought how interesting that music can do that. It, it can really, in its own language, make you feel something or think about something that's not even you know that that you can't even really articulate and Mm. so i think that that music and spirituality do have that in common that that it's music can articulate things that um that are very hard to articulate or that you know i think that a lot of christians do very badly i guess i'll just say it (laughs) it's just you know there's a lot of judgment and then a lot of you know Uh, sayings that are just worn into the ground. It's just like all of us, you know. We're we're afraid, we get into a comfortable place and we want to, you know, we want to be right. We want to talk about the things that make other people like us or, you know, we fit in, you know, all that stuff.
0: This is a good place to talk about melody. As a writer, you say I'm very attracted to melodies. It's the ecstatic part of music. If you can ride on that melody with your lyrics, that can be very powerful. So in thinking about what you just said and also about your scoring television, what is it like for you to communicate through just melody versus having lyrics? And with uh, scoring television, how did that realization of communication through melody change your writing?
1: I, I'm, I guess it did change my writing, but I, I think it was a great relief not to... Always have to find lyrics that would match the melody, or say what, or try to try to say what the melody I felt was saying. That it was. I always. That's the hardest thing for me. I think with it, it's a lot easier to take a lyric and and just put it to music, um, to find the music for it, rather than trying to interpret what the music is saying. So uh, what I did like about you know scoring the Gilmore Girls in um, that I started in two thousand, I'd never done any composing before, um, and. When we started the the um, the show was so dialogue heavy that the the creator said or the EP said, you know I think no lyrics just you know just just melodies can you just Kind of sing. Have, can we just have your voice and and, and so um, how
0: like bold to say to a singer songwriter no lyrics?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I know. Only Amy Sherman Palladino. I love it, but but right. she was right. She was right, and and also we didn't have much time. I had to to condense the melodies to be able to just you know because i to get from one scene to another it's it's not a, it's seconds and so to to actually have a melody that kind of, that starts and doesn't just drop off um, or doesn't end abruptly it was it was you know i had to simplify and and all, because the other thing is a lot of times score can be just rhythmic or can be very, very plain and unemotional. But I felt that there were some emotional moments that needed to be played up with, with something a little darker, sadder, uh, something a little lighter. So it was a challenge to be able to express in that short amount of time to be able to express those emotions and to um, to really help the picture, you know, not hurt it. Mm.
0: <laughs> mm. Um, in thinking about your songwriting, uh, you say that you come up with great ideas while walking or driving. First of all, I want to give um, a credit to the podcast, Carol Pop, you were on there uh, talking about yes. your songwriting process and breaking it down. It was really, really interesting to listen to. Um, so you are talking about coming up with great ideas while you're basically turning off the trying part of your brain but you also strongly believe in editing so i imagine there's like a pretty big juxtaposition happening inside your head with those two combating aspects of your writing process
1: yes and and i hit the wall constantly you know mm. with that because sometimes i i can't get much out before the editors already screaming in my ear so that's important to Damn. you know you got to keep that got to keep that guy in check um, and and be free, to, but then, you know, a lot of times, the um, the melody, the idea, will um, be so stubborn. I've I've had songs that I've been working on for years. They just little pieces that won't go away. That I've finally, and I still have some, but that I you know will turn into songs years later. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's not easy to let go. But but I do believe in. That editor, I think that editor is really important. And I I felt that very strongly when I listened to a demo that I had started. I'd started just freeform writing on a cassette tape, uh, writing a song that I wrote in the 90s called I Need Love. And it was Mm -hmm. interesting to hear where that started and then where it ended up. And where it started was not, you know, if I just thought, oh, yeah, I don't need an editor. I can just, anything I do is really great. I'm just going to, you know. I'm going to throw that down. Put that on, you know, let's cut it. Um and it, it boy, I it took me a long time to write that song, but I'm so glad that I took the time because I I felt that um it really went to a whole other place. It really it wasn't the song I need love when I started it, even though it was mm. the idea that led me to that. So I think that's important to keep, um, to not be lazy, to keep going. If you think you can make it a little bit better and to keep listening to your idea, you know, is it, is it good enough? Are you, is there something you can do to make it better? Um, you know, but, but all of this is just so subjective and, um, you know, not, not easy. And it's become a little bit easier with experience, but, but I'm still, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still uh, trying to find my way in the dark, I, I think
0: as a christian musician back in the 80s uh, i get the sense that you were pretty uncomfortable especially towards the end of your leslie phillips recording days where the label was calling you the christian cindy lopper and you wanted <laughs> to write songs that didn't uh, reinforce people's religious beliefs so how did that experience change your relationship to reinvention and being okay with certain types of uncomfortable like living outside the christian music industry
1: um, yeah, I, it it was, um, I think I just became more and more interested in growing as a songwriter, in growing as a person. Um, and I think in any form of show business, there is always a temptation to just do this, the same thing that gets you applause. Just do that over and over again. Don't take any risks. So it, it was very similar, it all except that it was my spiritual life and my whole life as well as music. And um, and there was a lot of, you know, it, it was it's it's an it, it, at that point it was very odd and interesting that it was all um, very. Uptight, um, in terms of sexuality, all of that stuff was just, you know, at the boiling point with a lid that everyone was trying to hold on it, and um, it, it, that was kind of interesting. But and that got tiresome, you know, because it was just such a um, people were so judgmental and suspicious and and not and just not honest and not and as a result not very free or very loving, you know. And I'm not saying everybody. There were a lot of amazing people that I met during that time um, that are that are still wonderful. Um, but it it just got when you when you. Um your show business depended on whether or not you ever made a mistake or whether or not you ever slept with anyone you weren't married to it it just got to be a little too much right that's i mean that that's that mm-hmm. was in my record contract at the time which is really funny i will, you know you can't do anything illegal or immoral i mean define Immorality, you know, that's, right? According that's to not, who? Yeah, according to who? It's not an easy one, uh, but it was easy to break my contract because I just said, uh, "Well, you know what? I've slept with somebody that wasn't I wasn't married to, and if you don't let me out of my contract, I'll tell everyone." And so they said, "Okay, mm-hmm. fine,
0: you, you're free to go." <laughs> how was your How was your faith impacted by that whole experience?
1: I think my faith in people was impacted. Um, I felt that I, I felt myself I had, you know, a, a, I guess a true north, as someone would say. I, I had my own um, criteria for what a good person was, for being connected to um, God, to love, you know, to that energy outside myself. I felt very comfortable with that still, but I felt very uncomfortable with um, the people and and the way that the the uh, somehow faith had and the the I, what would I call this just um, the culture had warped people's idea of love of respect mm-hmm. of boundaries you know that was a big one um, I, I a lot of people felt empowered to say um, you know tell anyone what they thought they should do I saw a lot of that and they you know they certainly didn't have the good sense most of the time or the authority at any time to tell anyone how they should live their life mm. or what they should do. Um, but anyway, that's, we're getting sidetracked on all this. I should write a book about it.
0: <laughs> right, yes, yeah, we await your book about this experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm yes. not sure anyone would want to read it, but it, but it was, um, it was uh, well, I learned a lot about, again, like I said, I learned a lot about human nature and about people and, and mm. you know, how we all trip up and um, how to keep your eyes open and, and not, uh, not fall into those uh, terrible traps of, of judgmentalism and, and um, mm. you know, uh, envy. I think a lot of times people were envious or jealous and didn't deal with that. So then it came out as you're going to hell. <laughs> It's just free. Pretty... So, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's like an okay. easy
0: go-to. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. You could have thought about that a little more, you know? We don't have to go straight to hell. We could take a little side trip to self-realization <laughs> maybe and then see about the hell part.
0: For your final Leslie Phillips album, you started working with your future spouse, future ex-spouse, T-Bone Burnett, who is, uh, was a fellow Christian with a maverick approach to songs about faith and morality, and you found a kindred spirit in T-Bone. And I kind of want to hear more about you being a maverick, like what it's been like to lean into that rebellious identity throughout your life.
1: I I didn't really think of it as rebellion. I just felt that I had to—I was suffocating, and I felt that I had to get out and, and um, breathe and, and be who I was. And so, um, I, I was just trying to get better as an artist and grow and, and take in more experiences and more literature and visual art and music. I I just wanted to expand and break open my world and to let all of this wonderful stuff in, because I think that there, because Mm -hmm. of a lot of fear and fundamentalism, there's a shutting out of things that maybe aren't approved. And, um... You know, just like I said about the, you know, the the uh, ladies at the Pentecostal meeting with the beehives. Obviously, they were afraid to have any other hairstyle or any other style. Right. Style, <laughs> you know. Because, and right. isn't that so funny? And it's, and I'm glad I actually ignorantly asked that lady if it was part of the religion because it's it's a good question. Mm-hmm. Why why are you mm-hmm. all expressing the same thing? And I think a lot of times it's human nature to to want to fit in, but also, you know, to being afraid of uh, being rejected. And I felt that instead of being afraid that that Christian audience would reject me, I really felt I had a responsibility to the people that were listening to me at that time that really actually came out of that world with me. Um, And I I felt I wanted them to trust me. I felt badly that sometimes I had, um, you know, I was very young when I started. I was you know in my teens and very young making records and I think I'd said things that were not thought through you know because I was a kid and um, you know and people were looking to me for answers and so what do you do sometimes you just try to make up the best answer that you can and um, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to I didn't want to do that anymore I wanted to um, stop answering the questions or stop giving answers if that's what I had to do to be more truthful and to find the answers for myself And then let the music and and the lyrics and and my life, you know, let it all radiate out from there.
0: You became Sam Phillips, musically speaking, in 1988. And your music career throughout the 90s was very of the time, like, pop sounding. (laughs) And you said being a solo female artist was not easy in the pop world. I don't think I was meant to be a pop person in that way, which I read as you talking about being like a popular face forward, my name is on the album cover type of musician. But what what does that mean to you?
1: Oh, well, I think a a pop star, a celebrity, I guess. I was, you know, it's funny because in in, – during that time, I did. Um, I had a, a lot of acquaintances that were very well known. And um, one in particular, I'm thinking of, who's, who I adore, who's really such an extrovert. But when we would go out in public, with this person um, and all the, and they would get a lot of attention. And, you know, I would get, it would be nerve wracking to me because I would, I, my maternal thing would kick in. I'd want to protect them, you know, (laughs) not like get away, get away people, you know, stay away. But when (laughs) that person, which is so ridiculous because that person's an extrovert and a performer and and feeds on it, you know, loves that attention, lives on that, thrives on it, you know, but um, I found all of that stuff, you know, to be kind of nerve wracking. And 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 also, you know, I always felt that if if a person's a good person and an interesting person, they're going to be that no matter if they're famous or not. I think sometimes people dream of going to a party with all their favorite famous people, and you know, it, you know, sometimes those parties can be drab. They aren't exactly the mm. most interesting parties, unless you know, of course, somebody's really smashed and and. Um, is taking a hammer to the room or something. You know, there are those things. But, but I just don't think, being famous, I don't think makes you uh, interesting. I think you are interesting or you're not. That's, mm. that's how I see
2: it.
0: After working on Gilmore Girls, you said, I found I was more comfortable behind the camera. Songwriting really has my heart, not singing. And I want to know more about how you feel about performing. I recall seeing you live, it remains like one of my favorite live moments where you're performing live with this crack band, and in between songs, you ask, you say to the audience, we need to talk about the encore. <laughs> and then you asked, do you want one? And everyone's like, yeah. And then that was like halfway through the show. And then you were like, OK, this is the encore. And you played the song, and you left the stage. And I'm like, that was brilliant.
1: Yeah, you've, uh, There's always room for improvement, you know? I, I think... <laughs> We, we were coming to the end of that. I think we're still sort of at the end of that thing. And especially when we're talking about, you know, in folk circles and, and Americana music, I think there's a tendency. I like tradition and I know that the audience feels comfortable doing a certain thing. But I also think, you know, what the audience is really comfortable with is when you have the wheel, you know, um, if you can feel the hecklers and, and just you can you can keep the wheel in your hands the whole time, you know, so that they don't feel like everything's out of control, I think. Um, but, but then you can also, you know, drive off the pavement a little bit and go off road and, you know, take them to, (laughs) you know, another place. I think that's also, that's, that's a good thing. A few surprises. Um, I think looking back, I wish I'd been much more, you know, gotten much more into the theatrical part of it, uh, than I did performing, but, um, you know, but that's, there are those that are coming up that I think are, are going to be doing that brilliantly. So I think there's a lot more mm. theater in there. There's a lot more of a combination these days. I, I think that's that's mm-hmm. what um, makes me really excited and, and um, hopeful that there there's an amalgamation of all these different disciplines, you know, dance, theater, poetry, music, um, you know, sometimes even politics or, you know, causes. You know, there are a lot of good things happening out there.
0: Mm. I read this interview with Amy Sherman-Palladino. It's a 12-year-old interview, um, but she was talking about you mainly in the interview, so I'm not sure if you have read this or not. But for those who haven't, Amy is a huge fan of your singing. She says her voice might be my most favorite female voice ever. It's kind of like Joan Didion's writing to me. It's a little haunted. It's a little step back Ah. from it. So it sort of creates this mood and tone. I just love her voice. So, Sam, what do you think of your voice, and how has that relationship changed over your career? Well, first of all, thank you for reading that. I had never read that before. And
1: um, I guess in some ways, lucky for her, she liked it, right? Because... (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of – I've actually – somebody actually said to me, oh, my God, my daughter watches this show called The Gilmore Girls, and there's this music, la, la, la. Oh, it's so annoying. (laughs) And he had no idea it was me, and I thought that was just fantastic. And I was – I mean, you know, probably my greatest moment would be if there was ever an SNL um, skit with somebody making fun of the Lalas. Uh, I know Gilmore Girls, the name has been dropped you know, in some of their sketches, but, um, but I think, yeah, my voice is it. I've learned to do the best I can with it. Um, it has frustrated me. I've always felt that I were, I was, you know, two people: the the songwriter and the singer. And a lot of times, as a songwriter, I was very frustrated with the singer that the singer couldn't do what I wanted her to do um, in mm-hmm. terms of the melody, pulling off the melody. But um, but I do think that the things that I love um, about singing, tone and phrasing, I think that I do have something that's a little more, um, and, and also a, a unique sound. Um, there are a lot of amazingly talented people out there, especially these days, and I think that the, the, the contest shows sort of raise the bar in terms of singing, or at least the pyrotechnics of singing and the, and the drama yeah. of singing. Um, It kind of that came to the forefront. Um, But, you know, I don't hear as many just completely unique singers because I I think it is a combination of of things. It is it it is your intonation and your and it is your tone, but it's also phrasing. It's really important um, to to phrase well and to get all of that going. I think all I did was I just listened to the Beatles a lot and I loved their harmonies and and I just wanted to sing like all four of them. At once, you know. If I could just have all four of their voices, <laughs> the dream,
0: right, in my pipes,
1: <laughs> and that came out, that would be, yeah, that would kind of be my dream. Which I, I'm sure not that many um, wonderful singers are ever thinking, but but I do, you know. I, I I've I think I've sort of made peace with it. Um, I have this um, child who is immensely talented, has an amazing instrument. And it, it was very interesting having to, um, you know, uh, uh, see, watch that develop and and watch my child work on that, you know, um, mm. and really, mm. really take singing lessons and use it um, and, and further it and take it so seriously and, and go to art school and just, you know, all this stuff when I just barely, you know, croak out a song um but it was interesting because um they said uh one time I, I said oh oh you're watching the Gilmore girls oh my god and and they said yeah because you know I the sound of your voice is comforting to me and I thought well okay I, you know if nobody else then that made me really happy I I because you know I I know that um they are pushing away from anything that their dad has done anything that i have done to make their own mark which i so respect and admire and love um but you know at the same time it's nice to know that there's a there's that connection there that there's there's that appreciation even though they want to run you know like hell in the other direction <laughs> which i don't, you know is is all a part of a, a good spirit i think a good you know Backbone.
0: Now that your child is a grown-up, how do they inspire or impact your musicality, and how do you relate to them as a musician? Um, I hesitate to say too much because
1: I know this is going to sound really, boy, like like some a, a dumb mom. But I am a huge fan. And, um, I don't even really want to mention their name because I want them to find their own audience. And, and I think that my audience, if they find um, them, they'll it'll be great. But um, I'm just I'm astounded by the writing and the things that are that are coming. and, it, and this is just happening now um they, they are just coming out into the world. So I, I kind of hate to – I don't want to jinx it or mention it. But I'm, I'm constantly inspired and hopeful because I think that they, they are taking the, the – um, all that they've been raised with. Um, and it's funny because they heard a lot of music growing up. But at 14, it's like a switch flipped. And they went deep into all kinds of music, into hardcore punk, into the avant-garde um, you know, Frank Zappa, of jazz, just everything. Just just like, uh, like this hunger, this thirst had been activated in them. And they know so much more about music than I do. I'm a very... It's the same way, I, I think, with a lot of literature and, and poetry. I find, you know, these things that I like. I'm a very specific person that goes deep. Um, my child, grown-up child, is... Um, is more just has just all this knowledge of of mm. music and has retained it and is and is not um, is really just putting all that together into their own sound. So um mm. the way I relate to it is just complete awe and joy because the other thing was it was never a plan. T- nor T Bone nor I ever had a plan of trying to. Uh, push that person into show business, <laughs> you know or anything in fact, I think we were hoping for something you know like brain surgery or you know something, but of course, you know um they are a beautiful creative person, so mm-hmm. more on that soon, I hope maybe they will uh visit the basic folk show at one point right i hope I hope so because i th- I think you 'd have fun with them,
0: yeah they're certainly welcome um Your husband, the string player and arranger Eric Fain of the Section Quartet, he's been working with you since 1994, but most intensely on the last three or four albums. So you just went through a pandemic together working on your new album. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How has Eric's involvement in the work changed your perspective on strings as a form of expression in your songs? Well,
1: first of all, I don't want to get in trouble with anyone, so I'm going to say that I've known him since 2004, not 1994. But um,
0: somewhere online, it says he was on your '94 album.
1: Oh well, we did might
0: be on his Wikipedia album.
1: You know, Fitch. you know what? What may be confusing is we. Um, I did um, a, a vinyl because I don't think Martini's and Bikinis did not come out in, on vinyl. So I actually did. A vinyl of that, and added a few songs to it. That redos okay. of, of some of the songs, and Eric played on that. So he played on. Yeah, he played on a, a reissue of Martinis and Bikinis. Okay, I'm glad. Has glad we figured tracks. That has extra out. Yeah, that's. I probably, do not want
0: anyone to get in trouble.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's you know he's a wonderful musician, and um, Eric is loves to listen and push himself as an arranger um, as a musician it's, it's interesting I, I watch people in the classical world and it's very cutthroat very ambitious and there are only so many sessions jobs and um, you know they're all vying for those you know those sessions those those uh, a-list jobs and I've watched him though he loves playing and he's Plays live all the time. I, he has fallen in love with arranging. and um, and also he's he engineers. um he's done some producing. Um, so it's an interesting thing about him. He's just so in love with music and being able to do a lot of different things not just be a violinist and um you know it's pretty nice to be holed up with someone that you like that can arrange strings it's it's been fun to be able to sit down with him and and sing him lines or collaborate on different ideas um whereas as much as i loved and and do adore him you know working with van dyke parks you know van dyke he you give him the song he gives you the arrangements there, there aren't you know there aren't many notes you know they don't there do not usually you don't have many notes for van dyke cuz he's he's so fantastic but um, mm. you know there isn't as much time to collaborate when you're on the clock like that so i guess being off the clock especially Really being off the clock during the pandemic gave us a lot of time to have some fun mm. with strings. And, you know, it's I'm, I'm taking my time with it because it the, the trap is, um, OK, Eric, here's a song. He does this beautiful arrangement. And it's, you know, I think, well, is it the, the arrangement that's making the song? Okay, or is it is it not a good song with a good arrangement, you know, or is it um, or is it an okay song? So it, it's it you know hearing those strings is just um, it's very seductive and they're they're really beautiful, and uh, sometimes it just makes it sound maybe things sound better than they are in terms of the the songwriting, <laughs> honestly. And so I in fact I have there's one song that I I've, I've had to throw out and sadly because I just felt like uh it's just the, the string arrangement was so beautiful, but I don't think the song yeah. was really as good as it, you know, as the string arrangement. So that's the So the strings the challenge. are manipulation. They are, Yeah. <laughs> they, they, in the best way, um, but it's also fun to to see what the strings can do. I remember one of my friends, Patrick Warren, who's a wonderful, also a wonderful string arranger and, and keyboard player. And uh, he, I asked him once. I just said, you know, what can strings do? What? And he said, anything, just you know, anything you can imagine. And I love that. I loved um, that kind of attitude. Um, now, of course, my songs are, you know not going to allow them to do anything, but, um, but I think we've, I think it's, it's um, so far, I think it's really lovely and, and, and beautiful. So I can't wait to finish it and, and um, send it out to the world.
0: Right. I won't ask you the question of when it's going to be out.
1: Yeah. Because I don't know. I'm really not, bad at that. Yeah, I, I could know. say, okay. you know, <laughs> in six months and then it could take another six months or it could be even sooner than that, but I, I doubt it. So let's, we'll give okay. it six months and change. Or or you know a year and change.
0: <laughs> um, before we end, can we do a lightning round? Okay. Is that is this just like a like a
1: whatever comes to mind, or am I or is this is actually yes. answering questions?
0: Answering questions. Uh oh. Okay. With lightning speed. With okay. I mean Sam like
1: Phillips facts and things I'm supposed to know.
0: Facts and feelings. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. Just and... so long as. Th- as long as there are feelings and maybe even dogs in there, I'll I'll
0: do okay. I just heard mine bark in the basement.
1: Oh, Don't please please don't tell him he's please don't tell your dog that he's down there because of me. Just say you are just tell him you were interviewing Tori Amos or something, you know, somebody else.
0: Okay. She hates Tori Amos. <laughs> I hope not, but I just anybody no. <laughs> else. Just just not Auntie Sam. <laughs> Right, right, right. Okay, here we go. Okay, what is a song that makes you cry every time? "Marie"
1: by Randy Newman. Or that's the first one that came to mind. There are a lot of, but that's one of them. It's just so beautiful, and with a string arrangement.
0: What is your favorite scented candle?
1: I actually gave up scented candles for the um, the, the oil diffusers. Mm-hmm. Any, anything calming. Okay. Anything calming. What color is your soul? I think it's a lot of colors. I don't think I can pick one.
0: Kaleidoscope. That yeah. Cool. What is one song you wish you had written?
1: Ugh. So many songs. I I really cannot pick one. It's it's that that's almost like the question. Tell me about yourself. You know, there just there aren't very many. <laughs> Give you a little what kind more specific. Of, what
0: kind of music do you like?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. One of those questions. But the, you know, the thing that will come to my mind is probably a Beatles song. So I'm just going to say help. And I, but I would say also, it's not just the song; it's the recording of the song. So that mm-hmm. you know, I wish I had. Yes, I wish I'd written it, but I also wish I'd sung it. I wish I had. You know that was my record. <laughs> so, but enough about enough about them.
0: What a perfect answer though.
1: Who is your celebrity crush? I don't think I should say this cuz then I'm going to be typed and someone's going to type me politically, <laughs> but I do I do love Rachel Maddow. I think that she's so smart and I just mm. I love her and, you know, I went through the pandemic with her on the screen. So, mm. I'm kind mm-hmm. of partial to her. So I might there's there's that celebrity crush. Let's see if I can think of another one that's not as. Um, do they have to be alive? Because I no. have a lot of dead ones. Fred Astaire and uh, oh, good one. Yeah, they're. I love all the dancers. I do love the dancers.
0: Okay, this is the last question. Who is your favorite Gilmore Girl?
1: So that has to be mother or daughter,
0: or grandmother,
1: or grandmother or baby, perhaps if there ever yeah. was to be a continuation. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh, it's really hard not to love Lorelei. And I really think, mm. I, I think Lauren is such a great actress. And maybe it's because when I was first doing the, the Gilmore Girls, I just, I mean, it was maybe our first or second spotting session. Um, I went to a coffee shop around the corner from Warner Brothers that's still there, Priscilla's, and um, was going in for coffee. And Lauren... Was dressed. I mean, I don't know if those were her real clothes or the Lorelai costume, but she was dressed just like Lorelai, and she was getting coffee. And and I'd already seen, you know, the the episode, and I just thought it just seemed like, um, you know, life was becoming art, or art was life, or something like that. It was just, it was funny. So maybe, maybe because uh. of that, I, I and, and also having, um, you know, a child that I adore and love so much and am, am very good friends with and close to, having been a single mom uh, during, mm-hmm. become a single mom, actually, during the series and going through all that, sometimes I felt that the, the writers were really telling my story or reading my mail. And so I think, um, you know, because of that, probably because I understand Lorelai's perspective
0: all great answers during the lightning rounds. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Loved it. Everyone loved it. Oh, good. And, and <laughs>
1: doggy in the basement.
0: <laughs> she gonna... is, uh, I don't, you probably can't hear her, but I can't it hear sounds her. like something is broken. There, <laughs> so I have to go, but yes, Sam, yes. thank you so much. This is so, was, I really enjoyed talking with you and, um, yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to the new record, but take your time.
1: Thank you so much, Cindy. And and uh, I think maybe you've got some editing to do. I'm sorry if I rambled too much <laughs> about. The last thing we want to do is like make people fall asleep about. You know, listening to stuff about no. mainline Christianity. It just doesn't seem like it's all the, you know, the rage of topics to listen to on a you know on a show about music. So
0: feel free. This episode was produced by me, Cindy House. You can find Basic Folk on the Bluegrass Situation podcast network. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app and listen there. Find us wherever you get podcasts or at our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Don't forget to tell a friend if you were like, this Sam Phillips interview was rad. And I think my friend Jamie would love it. Send it along to Jamie. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm, Bye.